The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, really thankful that you would spend some time with us this morning. Um, so if you are looking to get involved or know more about us, there's a blue and gray Connect card in your seat back, and you can fill that out at any point during the gathering. So let us know who you are. Uh, we are going to be using those um, gifts, $5 for each one of those Connect cards uh, is going directly to Ukraine relief right now. So um, maybe that's an incentive to make yourself known. Uh, the backside of that card is also for prayer. So if there's any way we can pray for you, and I'll call that out again uh, a little bit later. We'd love to pray for you, and you can fill that card out and be prayed for as well. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 24. Got a lot of work to do this morning, so we're going to get right to it. Man, nothing says spring forward like Arctic bl- uh, blast of temperature, right? Golly. It's supposed to be up to 50 today, though, so we'll see what happens. Um, Acts chapter 24. We are wrapping up our series uh, in the study of the book of Acts. Just a few chapters left to go. Um, just to give you an update on what's happening from here, uh, we're, Lord willing, we will finish Acts on Palm Sunday. That's the Sunday before Easter. Then we'll have Easter Sunday together. Uh, and then uh, we're going to do a, a short series on the church. So what we've looked at here is how God empowers the church, his people, on his mission. Um, but we're going to just take a little look for about five or six weeks at, okay, but what is a church? All right, what does it mean to be part of a church? What, what do we do as the church when we gather together? So we do that, and then uh, for spring and into summer, we'll be looking some, at some practical wisdom from the book of Proverbs, and I uh, hope that you are excited about that. Uh, last time we did Proverbs, it was uh, people really enjoyed it. That was like 10 years ago, though, so almost none of you were there. Um, <laughs> last week in the book of Acts, uh, we looked at the providence of God, and what we saw is God's invisible, caring protective hand over uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, he kept Paul from being scourged. Remember, the Romans were going to whip him, and then you know, he waved his Roman citizenship card and was protected. He was defended by his enemies, the Pharisees, which is a strange turn of, turn of events. He was protected by the Romans from an attack from the Jews. And now he's been delivered to this man, Felix, who's the governor of the region of Judea. And um, Now the Jews who initially accused him are going to have to bring their case before the Roman authorities instead of just the the Jewish authorities. Now, uh, along with Paul came this letter from the Roman tribune. Uh, His name's Lysias. And in this letter, I mentioned it last week, but it's a little bit of revisionist history. He basically says, hey, I found this guy Paul being attacked by the Jews, and I rescued him. Conveniently leaves out the part where he almost had him scourged, which would have been illegal by a Roman to, to do to another Roman. And he says, but I'm bringing him to you so that you can deal with it. And, uh, and, and nevertheless, he advocates for Paul's innocence, which is really important. So now he's being kept in Herod's praetorium, uh, which is essentially a guest room of Herod's home. Uh, the, the praetorium was the official residence of Roman officials in the region of Judea. So not a bad place to be sort of under house arrest. And, uh, and so now he's, he's going to be waiting there for the trial to begin. But even there, even under house arrest, even, you know, sort of imprisoned by Roman authorities, what we're going to see this morning is that Paul is, is given an amazing opportunity to represent Christ. And he seizes that opportunity. And, and so it makes me wonder, as we kind of get into things, like, how, 
has the Lord provided opportunities for us to, be, to represent him? Uh, whether it's before, you know, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, uh, what kind of opportunities has the Lord given us to represent him to the world? And, and what are we doing with the opportunities that were given? So uh, join me in Acts chapter 24. I'm going to pray for us now, uh, and then we're going to try to get through this whole chapter in about 30, 35 minutes. So uh, pray with me, and we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for this, uh, this beautiful people, these men and women who love you and are uh, eager to hear from you. And I pray that as we, um, as we gather under the authority of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do in each of our hearts, that you would make yourself known, that you would encourage, that you would challenge, that you would rebuke, that you would call from death to life, that you would um, just help us to see the beauty and the glory the reality of the Lord Jesus, and to cling to him with all our might. Lord, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, I, I plead with you to fill me and empower me as I preach this word, that it might be of benefit to your people, but ultimately that it might be of glory uh, to you. And so uh, we trust you. We ask for your help. Uh, help us to be attentive uh, and to be focused, and I pray that you would be glorified in this time of study. We pray in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Now, some texts I have said before are a little more teachy than preachy. Some are more preachy than teachy. Uh, this one, because of the, the sort of context of the narrative, tends to be a little bit more teachy. Uh, but, you know, I might sneak a preachy sermon in there anyway. So join me, Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned... Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. It's just dripping with schmooze, right? But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming in that all these things were so. We'll stop there. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. Uh, my first point has to do with false allegations false allegations. Uh, Paul has made it out of Jerusalem up to Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 50 miles from Jerusalem, and there they're just waiting. And as eager as the Jews were to kill Paul just a chapter or two ago, they are sure taking their sweet time getting to Caesarea. Take some five, six days to get there. Probably because they needed to gather their story <laughs> right? They needed to get their story straight. They're making false allegations. They need to make sure that, okay, you say this and we'll affirm it and you say that and we'll affirm it. And they're trying to essentially come up with a story that's going to cover their own behinds, okay? So they hire this guy, Tertullus. He's a lawyer, but he's not just any lawyer. He's like one of those ambulance chasing lawyers, all right? He's just full of, like it was common to start in a Roman court. It was common to start your arguments with flattery to the judging official, but this guy, it's just, it's just too much, right? He's just like going on and on about how awesome Felix is. And the reality is this. Felix was a vile, cruel, and corrupt man. He had the former high priest assassinated for criticizing him. His rule in Judea was marked by 
increases in contention, bribery, crime, and violence. And so none of these things that he's saying, oh, you've brought peace, right? You've great, great reforms. We're so thankful for your leadership. Like, it's all hogwash. He's just trying to butter up the governor. And then he says, now here are the charges we have against Paul, okay? First of all, this man is a disease. He's, he's a troublemaker. And he says this, he stirs up riots around the world. True? Kinda. <laughs> okay? Uh, the thing is, Paul did go around the world proclaiming the gospel, and he did not stir up riots. Other people stirred up riots against him, but nevertheless, riots happened, okay? But he wasn't the instigator. He, they simply hated him for what he said, and they would cause riots. Then he says, he's a, uh, let's see, he's a ringleader of this dangerous fringe group called the Nazarenes. Is that true? Not really, okay? Uh, James and Peter are really the, the leaders of the church at this time. I mean, this would be akin to being like, that guy leads QAnon. Like, it's like that. It's just nonsense, right? And then he says, Paul even tried to profane the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. Is that charge true? No, right? We saw earlier that was a presumption or an assumption on the part of the Jews who saw him with Gentiles in Jerusalem, but then they just assumed that he had brought them into the temple, which he never did. So all of these accusations are totally false. And here's the crazy thing. These are devoutly religious people. The accusers are made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the two leading religious groups of the Jews of that day. They are devoutly religious, and yet they are breaking their own religious laws in order to put a stop to Paul. Thou shalt not bear false witness is a big one in the Old Testament, okay? But, but for them, for these Jews, the end justifies any means possible in order to try to stop Paul. And it's a reminder to us that some people hate the name of Jesus so much they will go to any length to silence it. Now, you and I do not really face persecution like this, okay? I know that some of you thought that the government wanting you to wear a mask was religious persecution. It's not, okay? And, and I'm going to show you that in just a second. Show me this map real quick, Ryan. Okay, this is a map. Uh, it's from an organization called World, World Watch, and these are uh, the countries. Uh, in this year that have the highest rates of persecution among Christians. I need you to know that in 2021, one in seven global Christians faced significant persecution for their faith. That's 360 million Christians worldwide, okay? Interestingly, the region where Christianity was birthed, the region that we have looked at so in depth in the book of Acts, is a hot spot for persecution of the, of the Christian faith even today. And on average in 2021, 16 believers every single day gave their lives for the name of Jesus. 16 on average Christians were martyred every single day in 2021 for claiming the name of Jesus. Okay, just this past February in India, there were four believers who went to a birthday party and at this birthday party, the police showed up and they arrested these believers for, quote, deliberate and malicious acts intended to outrage by insulting religious beliefs. 
they were at a birthday party doing nothing wrong, and they were arrested. They are currently in jail at the, for that charge. You think, well, that's kind of third world, you know, it's not the same here. Okay, Finland, it's a pretty progressive place, right? Uh, in Finland, there's a former government official in the country of Finland who is facing charges currently um, of what they call causing intolerance. And what she did was she posted on social media a picture of a Bible verse that, had, that addressed sexuality. She's under arrest and being charged with causing intolerance. Um, so I'm, we do not face anything like that. But I, I want you to see that because we need to be a people who are in prayer for the brothers and sisters around the world who every time they gather, like we, you got up and you're like, should I go to church or not? And you came, right? Praise God for that. But you were not under any threat except for maybe your spouse, right? To get out the door on time. You come here and we worship freely and we drink coffee and we're enjoying this time together in a well-heated room. And there are believers around the world who every time they gather together, their lives are at risk. They do not have the freedom to meet like this, and yet they meet anyway because Jesus is so valuable to them. So let us be a people who pray for the persecuted church around the world, who pray for these people in countries who are facing this kind of persecution um, for what they believe. We should be honored to be included with those kinds of saints. You know? In fact, let's just take a minute right now and pray for these folks. Pray with me if you would. Father, I... Uh, we have no idea what persecution is really like. We don't. And yet these brothers and sisters, uh, uh, they face it regularly. Hardship, suffering, oppression, because they cling to Jesus, because they say there's another king, another savior, the only savior. So Lord, may we learn from them what it means to really hold on to Jesus I do pray your protection over them. I pray more than that, that the, the, the gospel would spread even to their persecutors, that those who are causing them harm, like Paul, would, would see Jesus and, and in a flash be converted. That the next church planners and pastors in this world would be made from those who are currently persecuting the church. That a demonstration of the reality of Christ would so impact these people. And Lord, as, as those who give their lives for the sake of Jesus uh, uh, meet you in eternity, may they hear from your lips, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to be a people who pray regularly for these believers. I pray right now specifically for the believers in Ukraine who um, are meeting in bomb shelters and everywhere that they possibly can and singing praise to your name and, and, and um reading and clinging to your words. And, and Lord, um, this war is not only because of religion, but it is at least in part because of religion. And so I pray just for these Ukrainian believers that, um, that you would strengthen them, comfort them in the midst of this war. Pray for a, a soon end to this conflict and that your name would be glorified around the world, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done as on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. All right. Um, look with me now at verse 10. 
So the Jews have made their accusations. Their prosecution kind of rests, all right? And now we pick up in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him, that's Paul to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. It's an interesting choice of words. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And yet they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience, both towards God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation. Should they have anything against me or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, my next point here, if you're a note taker, is truthful testimony. We saw false alleg allegations. Now we see Paul's truthful testimony. The prosecution has rested. It's Paul's chance for his defense. And he says, I'm going to make my defense cheerfully. What? <laughs> he's, in, he's imprisoned. He's falsely accused. And he's like, I'm joyfully going to give my defense. How can Paul say that? Well, do you remember what happened last week? Paul was imprisoned. A night and a day and another night go by, and who shows up to him in the prison cell? Jesus. And Jesus says to him, take courage. Be encouraged, Paul. You have testified at, to me in Jerusalem, and you will testify to me in Rome. In other words, your life is in my hands, and I'm going to make sure that you get to Rome. Which was an assurance to Paul that no matter what happened to him going forward, he would make it there eventually which gave him the freedom to speak openly. And so he does that. He's going to speak openly because he knows that his life is secure. He knows that Jesus is with him and for him and will carry him through. Now, sub, sub little point here, okay? If you knew today, if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus was with you and for you, and would carry you through, how would that change your perspective on your current situation or circumstance? I know some of you are, are up against enormous challenges. Some of you, they feel enormous. Maybe they aren't so big, but they feel just astronomical. And yet, if you knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was with you and for you and would carry you through, how would that change your perspective, your outlook on what you're going through right now. And so Paul, he addresses the crowd and he says, look, uh, you know, it's verifiable. I've only been in Jerusalem like 12 days and everybody knows it takes at least two weeks to get a good riot going. <laughs> and when did anyone 
see me stirring up a crowd? When did anyone see me causing a riot? In fact, these people can't prove anything against me, but I will confess this. And when he says confess, you have to know that everyone was like, okay, here we go. He's going to confess something. And he goes, I confess, I believe in Jesus. (laughs) And they're like, oh, here we go. He says, I worship the God of our forefathers as a follower of the way, which is what the Christians were called in the early century, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and followers of Jesus were known as followers of the way. He says, I follow the way. And I want you to see how seamlessly and how naturally Paul is able to turn this conversation towards the gospel. (laughs) That ought to challenge us. Not to, not to try to shoehorn the gospel into every conversation, you know? Like, there's a bad way to do that. When, when people, you know, lament at how, like, now when they get up in the morning, it's going to be dark because of the time change, and you're like, not as dark as it was at Golgotha when the Lord, right? Like, <laughs> we don't need to do that. <laughs> but, but here's what's obvious with Paul. The gospel flows out of his heart and out of his mouth. The the Lord says, right, whatever comes from your lips is what comes out of your heart. And it's obvious that Paul's first love is Jesus, and it just naturally comes out of him. And that's what happens with us. Like the things that you love the most, you just can't help talking about. And it doesn't feel forced. Like the reason why you recommend restaurants and bands and movies and TV shows and the reason why you share the pictures of your grandbabies with everybody is because they have your affections. Does Jesus have our affections to that degree where what just naturally bubbles up out of our mouths is stuff about the Lord? What he's teaching us, what he's doing, how sweet he is, his kindness, the goodness of the gospel. Paul says, I believe everything in our Jewish scriptures. The law, the prophets, I believe they all point to Jesus. Now, the Jews would say that's heresy. But I believe it. He says, they have. Now, remember, his accusers are both Pharisees and Sadducees, okay? The Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural, didn't believe in spirits or in resurrection or anything like that. Pharisees believed all of it. And he's a Pharisee, Paul is, and he knows these guys, some of the accusers believe what he believes about resurrection. So he says, they have a hope of a future Messiah and a king, and I believe that that is fulfilled in Jesus. They have a hope of resurrection, and that points to the resurrection of Jesus. And then he does something brilliant. His original accusers, remember, from Acts 21, were probably Ephesian. They they call them Asian, uh, Asian Jews, but they were most likely Ephesians who had seen Paul in Ephesus. They caused the riot against him in Ephesus. They're in Jerusalem, they see him in Jerusalem, and then they cause a riot against him in Jerusalem. And so as he's going here, he's like, those Asian Jews, by the way, where are they at? And they're nowhere to be found, which is a big deal, because according to Roman law, if you abandon your charges, that was a serious offense. And these original Asian believer, Asian, Asian Jews, these original Ephesian Jews who, who initially accused him in, in Jerusalem, they're nowhere to be found. So he's like, Where are they at? They ought to be the ones here accusing me if I actually did anything wrong, but they're nowhere. And he boils it down to this. He says, look, the gospel that I believe does not undermine the law, whether it be Jewish or Roman law. In fact, my gospel upholds the law. But they are just mad at me because my main message is that Jesus is alive and they can't stand it. That's what this is all about. 
Now, when you and I interact with people who are not followers of Jesus, and I hope that we are interacting with people who are not followers of Jesus, one of two things happens often. Some people have genuine questions, genuine concerns, genuine hurt. There are a lot of people who don't trust in Jesus who got hurt by church people, okay? And they have all kinds of baggage and all kinds of questions and all kinds of concerns, and they've heard about certain contradictions in the Bible and this and that, and they just, they just want to know. And it's important for us to lovingly approach those people, right? And we don't have to answer every question of theirs, but just to walk with them and to um, acknowledge their questions, right? Not consider them dumb, um, but to, to walk with them and to, to honor their true questions and, and investigations. But there are other people as far as I can tell, it's not honest wrestling for them. It's just, I, I want to give Jesus the stiff arm. And so they're going to make accusations and they're going to make excuses and they're going to, well, you can't believe in this. And there's going to be all kinds of pushback. And with those people, I have found it best to just say, okay, but what do we do about Jesus? Because all those other questions and concerns about things in the Old Testament or about the, you know, oh, well, the New Testament God looks different than the Old Testament God. It's like, okay, did Jesus rise from the grave? Let's just start there. Because if Jesus rose from the grave, that changes everything. And if he didn't, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what are we doing? We are the most to be pitied because we believe in something that didn't happen. And so let's look at the historical account. Let's look at what happened in the world. All of a sudden, right, these people who were scared all of a sudden become emboldened. The world is turned upside down because of people who say that Jesus is alive. And to this day, 360 million believers are willing to endure hardship and suffering and persecution because they say there is a king who has risen and his name is Jesus. If that's true, it changes everything. If it's not true, we should all walk away. What do you do with Jesus? Is Jesus who he said he is or not? That is the key question. Questions about the clarity and the sufficiency of Scripture, questions about the continuity of the Old Testament, New Testament, God, all that gets resolved if we settle who is Jesus. Now, you guys with me? Okay. Look lastly at verse 22. Maybe this was more of a preachy sermon. Sorry. <clears throat> All right, verse 20, uh, 22, chapter 24, verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Odd, because he already has a letter from Lysias saying that Paul is innocent. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody and have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was su succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Uh, my last point here, if you're a note taker, is earnest wrestling. Earnest wrestling. 
The text tells us that Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way of Christianity. And you might ask, how was that? I think there might be three things in play. Number one, uh, Felix succeeded Pontius Pilate. So if you've read the Gospels, you know that Pontius Pilate was uh, intimately involved in the conviction of Jesus and his uh, ultimate crucifixion. And so having taken over for Pontius Pilate, he was aware of, of this Jesus character. Secondly, his wife is Jewish. And so she is aware, right, of all the stirrings in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the spirit falling, all that. Number three, this is a little bit more speculative, but I think it's interesting. Remember Acts chapter 10. Peter gets that pig in a blanket dream, right? And, uh, and, he, and he realizes that the gospel's for Gentiles as much as it is for Jews. And do you remember where he goes in Acts chapter 10? Caesarea. And he talks to a centurion, a Roman official. And he shares the gospel with this Roman official who's a God-fearer but has never heard the gospel. So he explains the gospel to this God-fearing centurion who gives his life to Christ, as do others. And now there's a Christian church birthed in the city of Caesarea. Now, Felix uh, was not the governor when this Roman uh, uh, centurion became a believer, but he more than likely worked for him. And you have to imagine uh, that that centurion looked a little different than the other centurions. And so he had this acquaintance with Christianity, but he had a knowledge of without faith in. Far too common today to have a knowledge of Christianity without faith in Jesus. Jesus is not a concept for us to adhere to or to assent to. He's a person that we encounter And so it's important that we have knowledge with experience because knowledge without experience leads us to a thin, hollow, fleeting belief. I wonder where you find yourself today. Do you only know about Christianity or have you experienced Christ? And here's what I mean by that. You know that the life that Jesus lived tempted in every way that we are, but without sin, perfect, fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law, that the life that Jesus lived, he lived for you, for me. You've personalized it. The life Jesus lived, he lived for me because I never could. I could not be perfect. I could not achieve what God's standard is, but Jesus did it for me. I know that when Christ died on the cross, he died in my place for my sins. He died for me. That when Jesus from the cross said, it is finished, that counted for me. That all of my sin, past, present, and future, was covered by the blood of Jesus. And so I can experience that because he died for me. And that when Jesus rose from the grave, when he conquered death and sin and hell, he did it for me. So that when I received the finished work of Jesus with the empty hands of faith, that was for me. And I can now be forgiven and saved and welcomed into the family of God. And now in Christ, I feel forgiven. I feel loved by God. I listen to him speak. I speak to him. I submit myself to him. I obey him. I have a relationship with him. Do you only know about God or have you experienced him? So Paul's basically kept under house arrest with privileges because he's a Roman citizen. They're waiting for Lysias who never comes. But here's what's interesting. Something about Paul's story, something about Paul's gospel sparked interest, curiosity in Felix. 
He wanted to know more about Paul. He wanted to know more about the way. And Paul seizes this unique opportunity to tell the Roman governor about faith in Jesus. (laughs) And as we think about the providence of God, right, in what other circumstance would an average, everyday, ordinary Christian have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the governor of the region, a Roman official? It's crazy. But yet here they are. And what does Paul address? It says that he talked to Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. The three building blocks of church growth. (laughs) Now, it's no secret that Felix was a vile and dangerous man. But Paul knew that his life was in Jesus' hands, not Felix's. And he also knew that this man's salvation, or at least the chance to tell him how to be saved, was worth it, was worth the risk. And so he takes the risk. Now, that makes me wonder, is there anyone that we have avoided sharing Christ with? Is there anyone in our sphere of influence that we have avoided talking about Jesus with because it would be hard or uncomfortable or we might risk the relationship? I mean, ultimately, listen, what do you have to lose? What do they have to lose? What do they have to lose if they don't hear about Jesus? So so Paul addresses righteousness and self-control and judgment. He essentially says to Paul, to Felix, now, um, historically, Paul had probably just concluded writing the letter to the Romans, the book of Romans, around this same time. So he's got all this deep theology swimming in his head, in his heart. And so when he meets with Felix, it's on, (laughs) okay? And he's like, hey, listen, Felix, I want you to know what Jesus did for you so that you could be forgiven. Felix, listen, I used to murder Christians, and now I am one. I can't explain it. It's crazy. But I feel forgiven for all that I've done. And you, Felix, with all your vileness, you can be forgiven too. Let me tell you how you can be counted righteous by God. Everything that weighs on your guilty conscience can be wiped away by Jesus. Let me tell you, Felix, how the Spirit of God can empower you to overcome temptation so that you don't give yourself to the things that you constantly give yourselves to, which pile on that guilt and that shame. Let me tell you, Felix, how you can escape the coming wrath of God. There is a higher authority than the Roman emperor, and he's coming, and his name is Jesus. But you can escape You can escape his judgment if you will surrender to him. I mean, think about the bravery, the courage of Paul to say those things to the Roman governor. And what happens to Felix? The text tells us he's alarmed. That means he fell under conviction. He was earnestly wrestling with the truths that Paul was proclaiming to him. But rather than repent, rather than surrender himself to the lordship of Christ, he sent Paul away. He says, I can't deal with this right now. And he puts it off. He delays. He procrastinates. Now, he's hoping for a bribe. But on the other hand, he realizes that Paul has something that's worth way more than money. And because he's intrigued, he continues to, okay, go get Paul again. I got to hear this one more time. And for two years, two years, Paul has this conversation, this dialogue with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And he explains to them everything about the gospel. But eventually, Felix is replaced by another governor. And we never hear about Felix again. It's a tragic story, really. 
Not for Paul. In a few chapters, Paul's going to, I mean, we're not going to hear from Paul anymore, right? He dies a martyr. But his life ends in victory because he closes his eyes in death and he opens them before his Savior who looks him in the eye and says, well done, good and faithful servant. But Felix, for Felix, a window of opportunity had opened for him to surrender himself to Christ. And he delayed and he resisted. And once that window closed, it was closed for good. And so listen, I would be a fool to think that there's not somebody in this room who has fallen under conviction. And you don't even know why you keep coming to church, but you keep coming and you keep hearing this stuff that you don't really like, but somehow it's compelling and you're still here. And yet you've delayed I mean, I've been in church my whole life. What would it look like if I surrendered to God? What would people think? Or I don't know anything about this Christianity thing. Like, what would, what would, my, what would my other friends think if I gave my life to Jesus? Like, I just, let me, keep, let me keep asking questions and keep thinking and keep, okay, the offer of Jesus is open to all, but it's not open forever. And only the Lord knows how long the offer stands. But when that window closes, it is closed for good. And so for any of you who might, have, who might be putting off surrendering your life to Jesus, I just want to remind you of Hebrews 3, 8, which says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today could be the day of salvation for somebody. Die to your pride and you say, I've been wrestling with this for long enough. It's time to surrender. And you give your heart to Jesus. Others of you have been putting off sharing Christ with someone. And again, I'm saying, for whatever reason you've been putting it off, don't delay, don't delay. There's so much at stake. So listen, as we close up, I got four questions that we're going to put up on the screens here. Um, and then I'm just going to give us a few moments of silence um, to reflect. So, uh, you know, you can take a picture of these questions when they're all up on the screen. You can write them down as they come. But I do, I do, I don't just put these up here to have like something to do for a few minutes, right? Like these are for you to take with you, to wrestle over, to think, to pray, to converse about. So um, first question is this. Am I confident that I belong to Jesus? Now, that may seem like a silly question, but again, I never want to assume that everybody in this room already belongs to Jesus. I want to give opportunity to anyone within the sound of my voice who doesn't know that they belong to Christ to belong to him today. So do you have knowledge of with experience? Do you not just know about Jesus, but you have felt his love, his forgiveness? You know that you've surrendered to him. The spirit dwells within you and gives you confidence that you belong to Christ Am I confident? If you're not, I would love to talk with you, pray with you, explain to you the gospel, and help you walk out of these doors today knowing that you belong to him. Do not delay. Secondly, when have I been given opportunities to represent Christ? This is not a, a question intended to make you feel guilty. 
This is a question intended to get you to have eyes to see those opportunities. So all of us have had opportunities that we have totally miffed. That's fine, right? God is sovereign. But I want you to be thinking, man, oh, I've crossed paths with this person three times in a week. Isn't that a coincidence? Or maybe it's the providence of God in putting you in front of them that you might share Christ with them. When have I been given opportunities to represent Christ? Work, home, family, neighbors, whatever. Have I seized them? What do I do with those opportunities when I've been given them? Okay, third. How does the reminder of what Jesus has done for me in his life, death, and resurrection, how does that motivate me to be more open about him with others? So I know I say a bunch of the same stuff week in and week out about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and I do that to remind you of his grace and mercy in the gospel so that that reminder warms your heart and makes you more excited about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And hopefully that motivates us to be open, to share him, right? To, to, to want others to experience the grace that we have experienced. So how does the reminder of what Jesus has done for me motivate me to be more open about him with others? And then finally, who can I be praying for during the season of Lent? We just began Lent on Ash Wednesday, a week and a half ago, carries through Easter Sunday. Maybe there's a person that the Lord has placed on your heart and mind, one person that you can be praying for that they would come to know Jesus. Maybe there's a people group of believers, right? Ukrainians, you know, uh, folks in, in Africa, Asia, other places, India, a, a people group that you can be praying for, believers that you're praying that God would strengthen them in this season as they approach Easter as well. But who can I be praying for during the season of Lent? All right, I'm gonna leave these questions up on the screen for us. Uh, I wanna give you about a minute to two minutes of just silence, okay? Uh, this is uh, something we're kind of starting to implement again here. Uh, it's just a moment of silent reflection before we move into communion. So you can be still before the Lord. You can pray through these questions. You can just ask the Lord to uh, minister to you, to reveal things to you that you need to do business with him about. But before, before we come to communion, we're going to have silence. Now, communion is a reminder that we take weekly uh, of the gospel. Right? We, are, we are remembering the life of Jesus for us, the death of Jesus for us, the resurrection of Jesus for us. That in his, uh, in his life, you know, he... he he was broken to make us whole. In his death, his blood was spilled to cleanse us from sin. In his resurrection, right, we are, we are welcomed into his family. And so we come in repentance, we come in faith, we come in gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. We, we take a piece of the bread, dip into the juice or the wine, uh, whatever our conscience allows. And, and that's a moment for us to reflect on what Christ has done, how he shows us his love. But before we do that, and if you're not a Christian, you know, this is, isn't for you. It's for those who've surrendered to Christ. I just want to give you about a minute and a half, two minutes of silence. Um, I, will, I will give acknowledgement, you know, when that time is up and you can come to these tables. Um, but this is a time to be still and quiet before the Lord. So let me pray, and then it'll be quiet. Father, thank you for this time in your word and for these beautiful people. I pray that something that has been said today would stick. I pray that in this moment, by your spirit, you would do business with us that you would convict, that you would challenge, that you would encourage, that you would remind us of your grace and your love for us. Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who is distant from you, who is not a follower of Jesus, that in, this, in these moments that they would surrender their lives to Christ, that you would make yourself real in their hearts. And as we respond through communion, through giving of our offerings, through singing, worshiping that you would be honored and glorified and that you would 
fill us with a sense of joy in your presence in this room this morning. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Let's be still for just a minute.